right. Good morning, everybody. I'm Kathy Shires, alcoholic. Um, thanks for showing up. I've been to lots of conferences, and I remember the days that, especially if there was like a Saturday night AA dance, I wouldn't get up for the Sunday morning speaker. So uh, I didn't expect more than 10 people here. So thank you for getting up and coming back again. Um, hopefully you won't be disappointed. <laughs> I, a lot of conferences, they used to say that the Sunday morning speaker was like the spiritual speaker. Which is super funny when I thought, you know, I used to like be a staunch atheist, right? <laughs> um, I am not that person today, um, but uh, it's just, it's really nice to be here. Wendy is the hostess with the mostest, and I thank the committee for asking us to be here. You guys did a great job and made us feel really welcome, and I feel like we made some new friends in Louisiana, which is super cool. Um, my sobriety date is January 4th of 2007. Uh, God willing, if I make it to January, I'll have 15 years, which is a miracle. Especially after uh, relapsing twice with years of sobriety. Um, I'm so grateful that, you know, I don't have a real defined conception of God. Um, as Cliff had said yesterday, probably it's probably a good thing because if I really had a real definable uh, vision of what God is, I'd try to work the angle. You know, the more I know about you, the more I can try to manipulate you, right? So the fact that it's a big unknown is probably a good thing. It's almost like Star Wars: The Force. Um, I know there's a power source available to me. It was always available to me, but uh, I'm like a radio that's a broken receiver. It's like the radio waves for me coming through this room. It's like you can't see them, you can't feel them, can't hear them, don't know they're there. And if you plug in a radio into the wall, if it's broken, all you get is static. Now, God's not withholding kind of power from me because I'm broken, but I can't catch it. I'm broken somehow. And so when I have that radio, if I have out a manual and I take some steps to, you know, fix this wire and do this and fix the receiver, all of a sudden, in comes the music, you know? Um, so I'm able to catch the grace, sort of. So the steps for me were not designed to find God. I mean, God wasn't lost, you know? Um, it really was about reducing me so that I could catch the grace, finally. And I'm so glad that God, for me, is not... It's not made in a human's image with the petty judgments and uh, want to, you know, punish somebody and uh, be cruel and petty. Um, as long as I'm willing to do some certain simple things, I seem to catch the grace. And it seems to be, in my case, very undeserved. So I'm really grateful um, that you guys gave me the treasure map to get in touch with this power that I desperately needed. Um, John mentioned on Friday that my home group is the Fifth Tradition Group in Atlanta, Georgia. Um, our two main meetings are like a Thursday night big book study and a Saturday night speaker meeting. Um, if you're ever in the Atlanta area, definitely go to the Fifth Tradition Group website and look us up where you can get the directions to get there and you can message somebody if you need a ride and, and that kind of stuff. We would love to have you. Um, it's a three legacy group, a purposeful group of people in action which is the only kind of group I can seem to stay sober in. I'm the girl who relapse on the 10% I'm not doing. I don't mean to be that alcoholic. Believe me, if I, if I, 
There's a lot of people in AA that would they say they're alcoholic and maybe they are, but maybe all they have is the allergy and as long as they're drinking they can't control that, right? Um, but if you spin dry them in a treatment center and keep them away from it and break that cycle a little bit, they can just hit a meeting once a week and maybe meet up with somebody and go to dinner or play golf and kind of treat AA like the sober Elks Club, like a so nice social organization where you meet these nice people and we pal around together. Um, that's not the kind of sobriety I can stay sober in. Um, I wish I could work that program. I really do. I really wish as long as I was dry and didn't have drugs or alcohol in my system that I could go back, as the doctor's opinion says, being an able, intelligent, friendly person. <laughs> but that's not the truth for me, is that when I stop drinking, that's really when I notice I'm not right. It's like my alcoholism really begins as soon as I close the bottle. And see, people have been telling me for a while, like, if you just stop drinking, your problem will be over and I want to scream at them. I'm like, dude, if you felt the way I feel when I'm stone cold sober, you'd be drinking and using right now. Right? Because I don't really have a drinking problem. I have a sobriety problem. I cannot do life on life's terms without taking the edge off of it. You know, life is really pointy when you walk around like a person like me. I bump into points everywhere. It's painful. It's scary. Infuriating most of the time because it's full of people and they're super infuriating. Um, I'm super judgmental. I get self-piteous. Um, and I, I always drink again when my alcoholism is untreated because why wouldn't you? When I'm suffering like that, I would sell my child for five minutes of relief. I'll take it as long as I can take it until I finally crack. And that's really the story. Just out of curiosity, who in the room has been sober for any length of time, three months, six months, two years, and then went back out again and are now back? Oh, yeah. So half the room. Okay. <laughs> My story's for you. Uh, I'm not saying I got nothing for the one white chip person, but uh, I am the poster child of what not to do in Alcoholics Anonymous. Right. Clearly, I think the rules don't apply to me. At times I had sponsors said, I really don't think you should do that. I think you should do this. And I'm I'm going to prove you wrong. How I'm sort of the exception to the rule and I can sort of design my own program, um, which seems more comfortable, super convenient and really easy. And I don't have to do any of these hard things. Um, and I I can't stay sober that way. I didn't mean to be this alcoholic. When I was in like first grade and everybody's going around the classroom saying, what do you want to be? And he said, I want to be a fireman and I want to be the president and I want to be a dancer. I did not say, I want to be an alcoholic. Um, I grew up in horrible alcoholism. Um, I am the one that qualifies for many 12-step programs, including adult children of alcoholics. I don't go to anything but AA, but I qualify for a lot. I got a lot of history and issues, right? Thankfully... The steps of Alcoholics Anonymous seem to sort out all of those problems for me, which is awesome. Um, my mother was a really bad alcoholic. I was an only child, and um, she was, if you've ever heard Polly from, she lives in Jacksonville, Florida now, tell her story. She talked about being the person, that, the drunk that was like passed out on the couch or on the floor, and her kids would walk over her and go make their breakfast and stuff like that. That's exactly how my mother was. She was non-functioning. She could not hold a job. She drank copious amounts of alcohol and took tranquilizers that would anesthetize an elephant. 
things that aren't even on the market today, like super serious drugs. Um, there was a lot of violence in my home. It was complete and total chaos. Um, I've been burnt with irons. Uh, my, she tried to kill my father in a blackout, literally hitting him in, over the head while he was asleep with a hammer. Um, serious violence. I did not grow up in a home where, you know, the adults and the parents had fancy dinner parties and stuff and the alcohol looked enticing and everybody's laughing and having a good time and you're a kid thinking, you know, it did not look attractive. I did not understand why anybody would put those kind of substances in their body because it was, hor it was horrible. Um, I mostly hid out in my room with my dog and I played... I've always been a music fan, and I would, you know, put on a Libby Newton-John and put on Grease, and I'd sing with my, my hairbrush in the mirror, and I imagined myself on a stage with thousands of people adoring me and just be transported out of my situation. And for years, when I was young, if you had asked me if I believed in God, I would say, sure, but I don't know where I got that from. We never went to church. I only went to church when I visited my grandmother, because I was an only grandchild, too, which makes me super spoiled. And she would put me in cute little dresses, and we'd go to her Presbyterian church, and, and she just wanted to show me off to everybody. And, I mean, I just remember church being terribly boring. And I remember her swinging me on her swing and singing Jesus Loves Me and this kind of thing. Um, and maybe I just gleaned it from that. But if you were asked me, well, you know, do you believe in God? Yes, and what does that look like? I couldn't have told you. I never gave one minute's thought to God unless there was chaos in my home. And I would beg whatever this power is in the universe to please make this all stop. Please make them stop fighting. Please make my mother get my mother sober. Because it was, it was years before I understood what was really going on. As far as I knew, she was just scary and mean. Um, I ended up, as I got a little older, like six, seven, eight, started hearing the conversations. And they were usually some kind of fight over, you know, the booze and the drugs. And she wanted to go get more or something. And it was just this tussle all the time. Um, and my dad had to work two jobs to be able to keep us afloat. So he was gone most of the time, and I was left with her. So I stayed gone most of the time. I didn't bring friends home. Um, and once, once she tried to kill him in the blackout, I was about 10, and she left the home. And I was so grateful. I was just like, thank God, that's over. And she ended up, well, she didn't, I only saw her like two or three times in the next couple of years. Um, and soon after my 13th birthday, she dropped dead at 39. Because you cannot continue to pour copious amounts of alcohol and take those drugs and smoke three packs of cigarettes a day and come out a winner. You know, I mean, she tried to kill herself many times. I kind of feel like the fact that she finally died is kind of a blessing, really, because this was a tortured soul. And she should not have had children, but she did. And I was the recipient of her bad free will. I used to think that God did that to me. That God had a plan, and a plan must start with a beginning, to lead somewhere, and so that God did that to me. Put me, said, oh, you know what, I'm going to have this little girl and I'm going to plop her into that household. I do not have that kind of conception today. I really take what the big book says to heart. Um, and in step 11 it says, I'm asking for God's will for me, not God's will in the situations in my life. I don't think God makes the terms. I need to accept life on life's terms, not on God's terms. But God shows me if I'm willing to stay close to him and perform his work well, then God, I will be led into like, no matter what the situation is, God, how do you want me to show up here? Because I don't show up properly. I show up like a crazy person, like somebody super entitled, 
Somebody wants to exact justice upon you. Um, all of this kind of stuff. And everything is desperately unfair all the time. I blamed God for my upbringing. I blamed God for my mother being sick and dying and not zapping her sober. Um, and I, I thought by the time I got to AA at the first time at 18, I was convinced that the reason I was an alcoholic is because I grew up in that home. And there's a lot of societal things, at least in this country, that would kind of support that. Um, what, I, what I believe today is that I could have been adopted into the like, Beaver Cleaver family and I would have turned that household upside down. Because there was something inside of me that was wrong from the jump. Um, I was not, I don't have, no, my mother never poured any drink down my throat. Now, I drank at her many times. It certainly gave me an inventory. But I'm not a, I'm not a victim. I may have been victimized, but I'm not a victim. That's something I decided I was so that you wouldn't expect much from me, you see, because of my upbringing. Um, I swore after what I had witnessed that I would never drink, never smoke, never take drugs. I got to high school and I used to be the, the Debbie Downer who would be in a group of friends and I would berate people when they said they had gone to a party that weekend and what they had done because I didn't know what alcohol could actually, any positive effect it could have on you. Um, and I, I end up, all my life, I'll say this last little bit, is that all my life I knew there was something wrong with me. And Cliff did a really good job explaining that last night. Um, I too felt like when I went to school, that somehow they got the rule book on life. They seemed to know how to relate to one another. They seemed to be open and friendly and whatever. And, and I am a bundle of nerves. And I am driven by an old idea um, that if you really knew who I was, you wouldn't like me. So it drove me into being a studier of people. And so I would kind of hang back and I'd listen to this group of people talking and I'd figure out, okay, this is kind of a hip, slick, and cool crowd, so that's the person I'm going to bring out over here. And I'm in another crowd and I was in really like a lot of gifted classes, smart classes, so here's the nerdy kids who I really like, so now I'm going to bring out that side. And so this is not something that changed just because I got sober. I wore lots of masks um, to the point where I really didn't know what the truth was because it was muddled a little bit in truth. But if you liked me, or God forbid loved me, you really liked or loved a figment of my imagination. It was some projection of what I thought you wanted me to be. Um, and so, I mean, it was many years in AA when I finally was willing to bring that fear to God and say, you know, I don't really know who I am, but if you'll remove some of this fear, maybe it will be revealed. And thankfully, that's exactly what's happened. I can tell you that a few years ago, I spoke at a conference in Virginia, and uh, the guy had just met me on a Friday and took us, you know, picked us up from the airport, took us to dinner, and Saturday morning I spoke, and he said, I only just met Kathy yesterday. He said, but I can tell you one thing, is that she's an AA doer, and she's exactly who she says she is. What you see is what you get. And I start crying. I'm sitting in the chair. I start crying. And I'm not a big public crier, by the way. Um, so it was really embarrassing. But that was a huge compliment and a huge attestment to what God can do. Because I was not the same person in AA than I was at the house, than I was at the kids' school or at the grocery store. It was different people. Almost like multiple personality disorder or something. And now I am the same person. The only difference is I might not say the F word when I'm at the kids' school. But sometimes it comes out anyway. Um, you know, people get offended by bad language, and I actually love it. I think we should use it all the time. 
Um, you, go, you come in my house, you see magnets and pillows with curse words on it. Like, I'm good with it. Um, but, you know, it's offensive to some people. So that's the only difference. But other than that, I'm, I'm kind of who I am everywhere, which is really great. A wonderful promise of AA. Um, because I knew there was something wrong with me and I didn't feel like other people looked, um, I, I couldn't have told you why. You know, I, I know I've always been a really weird kid and really kind of always three steps left or right of everybody else. Like I, and, and the truth is, I still am. But I embrace that, and it's totally fine. It makes it, me kind of quirky and different, and who cares? You know, weird people unite. So um, I swore that I wouldn't drink, and I didn't pick up till I was 15, but I needed a drink when I was five. If I had had any idea the power that I could find in a bottle, I would have. I would have found it. You know, I would have done it. Um, we were on a like a spring break trip in Florida, in Panama City, and the only adult in charge was my aunt, and I was actually staying with her at the time. And uh, I, I just love her. <laughs> she's, she still lives close to me, and she's great. But she's a bit of a pushover, uh, untreated Alan Nunn. And my friends and I just, there's four of us, and we got together talking about, wouldn't it be fun if we got drunk tonight, to kind of see what that was like. And one of the kids, one of the four of us had drank before, just like once or twice. Um, so I went to my aunt with this proposal. I said, we will stay in the condo. We'll be good. We're not going to ride around or do, you know, do stuff. You know. Um, and she mm, kind of thought about it and said, okay. So we go to the grocery store. And I don't even know if they sell them like this anymore in these days because I never walked down that aisle. But um, they sold, they, this is when wine coolers, this is in the 80s when wine coolers started being a thing. And they had two-liter bottles of them. So we got six different ones because all the different flavors. I don't know what I'm going to like, right? And so there's four teenagers drinking. We got six two-liter bottles of those wine coolers. And the one kid who drank before taught us how to play quarters and this other drinking game, this kind of thing. I mean, in no time, we are totally hammered. And we're having the time of our lives. Um, I don't know what happened to the other three people that drank that night. But I can tell you what happened to me was nothing short of a spiritual experience. Right? All those night set promises that we read about finding serenity and uh, not regretting the past and the, all this kind of freedom that we talk about if you've made at least half of your amends that come in, into play, that happened instantaneously from a bottle. Right? It had the um, amazing ability to change my whole perception. It's like my life in one instant went from black and white to color. And it didn't matter if I was kind of weird or offbeat or whatever because as I started a drinking career, which we're the only people that call it a career, by the way. Um, it's not a career for most people, but I mean, I put time and effort and like learned stuff to my career in drinking. Um, I feel like I had a PhD in drinking. <laughs> and so... It also just fixed all that fear for me. And if I, when I, if I was weird, I could just say, you know, well, I was drunk or whatever. Um, the truth is, and I heard my friend Bob D. from Vegas say this. Um, he put a lot of things into perspective for me. He said it was like he was locked up in prison in his own mind. And somebody just finally let him out. And he could come out and play. And man, if alcohol will do that kind of power in your life, you will chase it to the gates of insanity or death. That is power, right? Um, and so 
An alcoholic was literally born that night. My aunt got really mad because we were obnoxious and somebody's throwing up in the bathroom and me and this other dude are throwing stuff off the balcony and yelling obscenities at people and laughing hysterically and she's like, oh, this is a mistake. You know, she's pouring the rest of the booze down. But uh, I, I now had a whole different trajectory in life. I was supposed to go to the Ivy League schools to become a doctor or a lawyer or something like that. I had such bright promise intellectually. School was easy for me. That's where the people I hung out with went. And I just took a complete 180 and was just like, where's the party? Where's the party? Where's the party? Like, I, I've got radar now. My friends changed within a couple of months. I'm not hanging out with anybody that I used to hang out with, but now all of a sudden they're kind of lame. And I'm just chasing the party. Um, in very short order, by the time I'm 16, and I, so I've only been drinking like six months, the consequences start happening fast. I mean, I literally took a drink and went straight downhill. Um, because I drink with complete abandon, as if it's going to evaporate within seconds. So let's get it down now. You know, funneling, drinking Jägermeister, let, let's go, you know. Get downtown now. We talked about not be, like talking about yesterday about not being a sipper. Yeah, of course not. Because I am only drinking for the effect. I want to get free again. Right? And I knew that sobriety would never do again. So in very short order, it was like you never knew who was going to show up. Because one night I'd be the happy-go-lucky me and the party gal, and that's the, that was the one that I loved. Right? And I thought everybody else loved her too. But very quickly, I uh, started showing up the angry girl too. Like, you looked at my boyfriend sideways, and now I'm chasing you around the room with a knife and threatening you. Or the one I really hated was the girl, the sad sap, that would start crying in her beer, so to speak, in the corner. Oh, life is just terrible. I want to kill myself. And they'd have to call my father because I'd want to, I'd be all dramatic and try to get in the car and drive off. And I mean, it's just crazy. Just so crazy. Um, and my aunt... My, my attitude also went in the toilet. My aunt got sick of looking after me, and so I had to go live the last two years of high school with my dad in North Georgia. And I walked into their house with a resentment with a capital R because I didn't want to be there. I was so entitled that I thought that whole – because he had gotten remarried and I had two stepsisters. And I thought that whole family should move from upstate Georgia to, to Atlanta because Atlanta's cool. Uh, I don't want to go to this redneck bodunk town when I wore nothing, this is before like goth, this is like 80s new wave, but I wore nothing but black and my hair stood straight up on my head and I thought I was too cool for school and this town is lame and the only people that I knew were a couple of friends that I had par like played with when I was like 11 or 12 when he started dating her and they were all into drugs and I was scared of drugs. Again, my only experience is my mother popping those pills and um, but you know, it's a funny thing. <laughs> You get me drunk enough, and somebody walks over with some pot, and I'm like, okay, we'll try that. And I'm like, well, that's, you know, it's organic. I mean, you know, it grows, so we must be meant to smoke this, right? And I literally just kind of kept redrawing the lines in the sand. So if you did pot, okay, that's all right, but, you know, cocaine was really bad. I mean, people get really messed up on cocaine, but then when you try that, it's like, Coke's had a bad rap. It's actually quite good. Uh, you know, erase that, redraw it. I mean, there were not a lot of lines left to draw. I'm a real alcoholic as described in the big book. Somebody with chronic alcoholism. And I'll get into that a little more in a minute. Um, but I'm an equal opportunity drug addict. I'll do anything you got, as much as you got. I use drugs alcoholically. Um, so 
which is important because a lot of people come to AA like I did at 18, and because they've done a lot of drugs, they're, they're not really sure what they are. So as AA members, we have to help them, you know, and talk about their story, and hopefully they're being honest so we can make sure they're in the right 12-step program. You know, because you could be an alcoholic and a whole bunch of things, which is what I am, but you have to be an alcoholic to be a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. I believe in the, the long form of the third tradition, which says, our membership should include all who suffer from alcoholism. And that includes me today. I can suffer from my own spiritual malady and ego disorder today. It keeps me a daily member, basically. Um, so things got really crazy really fast. I mean, I, I always used to, I think I mentioned yesterday in the, in the workshop, like, especially if I was ever around people who sort of were, quote unquote, normal drinkers, at teenagers. I mean, we're all kind of partying, but I usually hung out with the lowest of the low. Those are my people. I love them. Um, but sometimes I was at some kind of party where people were maybe drinking two or three wine coolers or something. And you learn very quickly that you get prepped and you drink before... Drink before you get there so that you can look sort of normal, but you always have your wheels and you just forgot the thing you had to do so you can get out of there to go finish the job. Um, so I was driving intoxicated all the time. And I hit, in a year, I hit three cars, a tree, a ditch, and a MARTA bus in Atlanta. Um, none of that was my fault, by the way. I had a story for every time why that wasn't my fault. And I would have told you I was a great drunk driver. Um, I mean, we're delusional, right? And, and I, would have, I believed it 100%. Um, by the time I graduated, you know, there were a lot of commercials popping up on the TV uh, from this one treatment center group called Charter. And they had Charter Peachford and Charter by the Sea and different ones in, in the Georgia area. And it would always be like, I mean, my friends and I be <laughs> drunk and high watching these commercials pop up and be like laughing at the television. It's like, is your child failing in school? Are they getting into fights? Is this happening? And I'd be like, nope, 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 nope. And I'd be like, yeah, I got this beat, right? And I graduate from high school with honors. I've got the pins and the cords, and this is not my doing. It was just a gift that I could do school pretty easily without having to crack open a lot of books or whatever, as long as I was there. Um, and so I, all I could do was wait for, to get the money from family because they came to my graduation and take off for Florida so I can blow it all in a week. Um, but I thought that I had the game beat because I thought, you know, I've, I've been working since I was 14, um, doing school or whatever, like clearly don't have a problem. And because my de definition of alcoholic was just what my mother looked like, I'm like, I don't look like her. Now, she had a few more years on me, too, and this is progressive in nature. But all I could do was see this snapshot of this person who I saw two weeks before she died and she looked like a monster, a beautiful woman whose hair was thinning, teeth had been perfect at one time, were literally falling out of her face. She had jumped out of a moving vehicle going about 55 or 60 miles an hour, so she walked with a limp. She had that swollen, tire belly that we get with booze. I, I was mortified because I had a friend with me, and she had to see that too. And I'm like, I don't look like that, so I don't have a problem. Um, I'm going off to college, and like I said, I, I didn't go to the Ivy League school. I just thought, I'll go to the, the state school in South Georgia because my grandmother said, I'll buy you a condo if you come down here where I live. And I said, okay, I'm easy. I can be led with money, men, and mansions, you know. Um, and so I go down there to start school, but I think I need to go in on a big score 
because i got to find a hookup when I get down there, and I need, you know, a little time to do that. And so I went in on a big drug deal, and one of my favorite drugs at the time was ecstasy. Um, I like speedy stuff. It, as as uh, Cliff was talking about last night, one of the side effects from my drinking is that I was a projectile vomit girl. I did not know what a blackout was until I came to AA. And that's because I never could keep it in my body. I literally, I would literally pour it down and I'd get about 30 minutes of fun before here it comes back out again. It's like my body was almost allergic to it, literally. Like, we got to get this out. I was tiny and I just tried to drink the boys under the table. Um, once I started doing speedy stuff, that changed a bit. And I can't say, like Cliff said, that I did the speedy stuff in order to drink more. Um, in some ways, drugs were, the consequences were easier to deal with. I could hide it. People wouldn't know at school. Easier to get when you're really young than booze a lot of times. Um, and so, but ecstasy I loved. And I, I really thought that I would be doing that forever, really. Um, and so I went in on this big buy, and uh, my friend was going to the airport to fly to New Orleans, actually, to come get it. And uh, he, his car broke down, so he said, can you take me to the airport? And so I grabbed a friend, and I said, let's take this dude to the airport, and then we'll go shopping in Atlanta. And um, never made it shopping, because all the feds come out of the bushes. Freeze, put your hands on the wheel. Immediately, my bank account's frozen. My car is seized by the federal government, and I'm in a lot of trouble. I skipped right over public drunk and, like, DUIs. I mean, that, that was laughable in my world. Everybody had DUIs. Didn't everybody get one? At least one. I mean, that would have been nothing but just a pain in the butt, a bump in the road. I went straight to two felonies for conspiracy. Um, this is blowing my mind. I am not getting out of this on, on first-time offender, I promise you. Um, and, of course, I'm having drug tests. During the process, before I get finally sentenced, I'm having drug tests and all this court stuff going on that gets drug out, and I knew I didn't need to be drinking or using. I was only 18 years old. I was only three weeks after my 18th birthday when I got caught, and uh, I thought, but by God, if you had my life, you'd be drinking and using too. And I became paranoid, like Cliff was talking about last night, like bugging out the windows, thinking my phone was tapped, and... I mean, like, I was a crazy person, and I'm also taking all the things that I can find that were in the High Times magazine to try to beat these drug tests, and I was, oh my God, it was so crazy. I mean, within five minutes of moving down to the college, I found my hookup. Don't we do that? We have a radar for that stuff. Like, I'm my own worst enemy. I can't, geographic cures never work for me, because I always bring me, and if I'm trying to escape the drugs and alcohol, well, I find that stuff in two seconds, right? So I end up having a couple of dirty tests positive, and um, the judge wants me to come in so he can talk to me. When you're paranoid, that's code for we're going to lock you up immediately, right? Um, and I sat there thinking, oh my God, I just got phone my lawyer, and I'm like, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. Now, I've been thinking about committing suicide for a long time. I just want it out. Just lights out, you know, no more pain. You know, and my life was just full of, of chaos and, and bad relationships. I always picked terrible people. I mean, I was not, I would have told you before I did an inventory that I was a great girlfriend. I was not a great girlfriend. But I would have told you, everybody just hurt me so bad. I didn't know I needed to do a sex inventory because I'm just a poor victim and I choose really bad people and all this stuff. That is not the truth. Um, but that's, you know, I had this one that I was in love with, would have laid in the road and died for, and he never did right by me. 
Um, and so he's kind of messing me around. I get this call from the lawyer, and I, I'm sitting here thinking, how am I going to kill myself? And I don't like pain. I'm not crazy about blood, although it would have been really dramatic to slice my wrist and just throw the blood all over the room just to make my parents feel bad, you know. Look what you've done, you know. I mean, like, it's crazy. Um, and up pops one of those Charter commercials as I'm sitting on the couch contemplating how I'm going to kill myself. And I'm by myself in the house, in my dad's house. And uh, I don't know. I don't know why, to this day, that I picked up the phone and dialed that number. Um, they... I got my stepsister because I didn't have a car. She took me over to the local uh, counselor office in town, and I basically vomited my life all over this guy for two hours, and he thought, my God, this is a mental case. I mean, I, can't, I shudder at the thought of what I looked and sounded like. And he said, you need to go to treatment immediately. And thankfully, he did me a real great service because he allowed me to get, and this is the days in the 80s when he had 30-day treatments always. Um, and he worked it out where I could go to one of the charters um, just on what the insurance would pay, with no copay, which is good because my mother had been in and out of treatment centers and mental hospitals, and my dad had no faith at all that they worked. So he wasn't going to pay thousands of dollars in copays for me to go because he thought it's not going to work. And she's a scam artist. And, like, thank God that doctor did that for me. And so that started my journey into AA, and I've never really gotten far away from Alcoholics Anonymous since. Um, but as I said yesterday, I went there because I'm neurotic and crazy, and I've never had any therapy over these awful, this trauma that I've suffered in my life. And so I thought we need a team of doctors all meeting weekly to have meetings about my treatment care. And they did get prescribed a whole slew of medications and uh, all this stuff in order to fix my crazy um, so that maybe I can go back and drink sort of normal, you know. I've not been ever been one, and there's a lot of people in A that are like this, especially if you have a lot of family or friends that are normal drinkers. They want to be like them. I never hung out with normal drinkers. Found them really boring. You know, if you didn't party like I did, you might as well have been a teetotaler as far as I was concerned. So I, I've never had that thing where I want to be the person that, you know, works all day, comes home, and helps my kids with homework, has a glass of wine while you're making dinner, and go to bed. That sounds like so lame to me. You know, I want the consequences of that girl. I want to wake up in my own bed, not next to strangers, my car not wrecked. You know, I, I tolerate a little bit of a hangover or headache, but I, I don't want the kind of stuff that happens when I drink, because when I... When a drink hits my system, it's like spinning a roulette wheel. You never know what's going to happen. You don't know if it's going to stop at a couple of drinks, if I'm going to drink with complete abandon, and now I'm vomiting and somebody's having to take care of the sloppy drunk, or whether I'm running to the dope man's house. I mean, this is just, it was just, I, I never could tell you what was going to happen. It was completely out of control. Um, but I, so I'd never been that person. I, I, I really want to be the person that can drink and use with complete abandon and yet have the consequences of normal drinkers. And those two aren't, you can't have that. Um, but I remember telling people, I called from a payphone, and you got some of the young people who may not know what that is, um, but in the hospital I called the payphone, I'm talking to somebody going, it's not like I'm going to stay sober. I'm not one of those lamos, you know. Um, but they brought, they brought meetings into the treatment center, like John mentioned on Friday. And... I heard people up here telling their story. And if you don't get anything out of my story today, don't worry. Go to a speaker meeting later this week. You might hear something that you can relate to, right? 
Um, I loved when they would talk about their funny stories. I loved when they would talk about how they felt. Even when they talked about how low it got. Um, the, pain, the pitiful and incomprehensible demoralization. Like, you, you got me there too. I'm ready to sign up for AA. But in very short order... Then they would say, well, then I came to AA and I got a sponsor and worked some steps and then God did the miraculous in my life and it was like a steel door would slam in my head because now you're stupid and brainwashed, right? Now, I'm not telling anybody this because I'm, I'm not a stupid person. I know you don't mention that out loud. I actually know that when you circle up a name and they say, you know, I'm Wendy and I'm an alcoholic and I'm John and I'm an alcoholic, when it comes to me, I say I'm Kathy and I'm an alcoholic. Because if you don't say that, you might get talked to. They might come up to you. And I don't want people coming up to me and hugging me or trying to talk to me about alcoholism. I don't want them to diagnose me. So I'd go along to get along. But I didn't believe I was an alcoholic. I believed I was a drug addict. Um, and the truth is, I really believe that the reason I, I used them with complete abandon is because I was crazy and had a bad upbringing. So I spent the next four years doing tons of therapy. Some of that was court-ordered. I spent five months in like lockdown treatment, and then my treatment got interrupted because I would have been there about 18 months, the kind of place I was at. But I had to go serve six months in the federal penitentiary. And the only thing I can really say about that is that I went with about five and a half months of sobriety, and they made homemade alcohol. And sometimes a batch would be ready, and some people would be like, hey, you want some hooch, you know? And I guess I'd gone to enough AA meetings and heard enough stories and met enough of my kind of people. You, kind of, you guys are my kind of people that it had worked enough that I thought, what if you continue drinking and all this and that, you know, you're, you're never going to be happy? That was the only thing I gleaned for five months of meetings is just the shred of hope that I could be happy. And I couldn't remember the last time that was unless I was completely obliterated and on a laughing fit because I was tripping on acid or something. Um, it had been a while since I had been happy. So I refused to drink, and I did get out of there with a little under, like around 11 months, and in one more month I got my white, my first blue chip, my first year, and I, it was amazing. And I was on a pink cloud. I'm out of jail. I'm not in treatment, locked up. Now I can go back to college and, and start this sober life. And I got a boyfriend. I actually worked out a boyfriend while I was still in treatment because I don't follow directions well. Um, and it was a love, it was a love affair. I mean, he drove all the way from South Georgia to Kentucky to see me in prison. I mean, how sweet is that? It's love, you know. Um, but it, it was a better relationship than I'd ever had. I could, he was sober. He had a couple of years sober. I could kind of count on him. He seemed to adore me. I mean, it was a lot better. Um, I went to school and did well. I lived with my grandmother and I paid back my restitution every month to the government and I'm, I'm following the rules. Um, but I don't follow the suggestions in AA. You know? I took the take what you want and leave the rest to heart. I took a, a man from the meeting and a cup of coffee from the meeting and we're going to leave them pesky steps and that book and sponsor at the meeting. Um, I am completely self-reliant. And... It seemed fine for a while because if you're just physically sober, a lot of things will get better. I don't have to worry about getting pulled over and having stuff in my car. And um, the class of friends were all in AA, but they were better. And it didn't seem like they're just trying to stab me in the back all the time. You know, so things got better. But the problem is, is I didn't work the steps to have a transformation. I didn't have a psychic change. And so I rode that pink cloud for a while, but probably around year three... 
the pink cloud has evaporated. And I start getting the, is this all there is to sobriety syndrome? And I think, if I go to that meeting one more time and that woman cries, I think I might hit her in the face. <laughs> and that dude's only coming here to hook up. And that per- just judgment, judgment, judgment. You know, um, the meetings didn't sound so profound like they did when I was a newcomer. I'm still jealous of newcomers these days because you your mind gets blown every five minutes. People seem so smart and spiritual here. After a while, you get really jaded because you've heard it all. Um, and I, I just, the depression was coming back strongly. And I've been diagnosed with, with manic depression, bipolar, clinically, you know, severely clinically depressed, Depends on what doctor saw me at what point. And the truth is, I've read all DSM qualifications, and I look like all of that and then some when I, when I have been suffering from untreated alcoholism. And sobriety, physical sobriety away from the drink, is not a treatment for alcoholism. I mean, show me which step says, don't drink today. None of them, right? Now, being physically sober for a day and put another day together, another day together, makes the treatment possible. I don't know people that get connected with God while they're still drinking at the same time. I'm an example of that. Um, so you do have to be able to, you know, a sponsor will say, can you stay sober today and I'll meet you at the meeting tonight or I'll come pick you up. You know, there has to be some physical sobriety, but that, I only get worse if that's the only deal, is just physical sobriety. And I don't really have those... Those mental illnesses, and some people in AA do. And if you're taking medication, it's fine. I have I, I sponsor people who take medication. Um, I'm not a doctor; it's not my opinion. But, you know, I'm out of that whole argument. But for me, I look like somebody that has clinical depression. But what I really have is the depression of the overly self-centered and self-involved individual. I can't get me off of me. Everything is like I'm constantly taking my emotional pulse going, how do I feel now? Well, how do I feel now? Well, how do I feel now? And good is the only thing to feel, by the way. I like, I like ecstasy, ecstatic. That's what I really want, right? But good is the only thing to feel. Um, and I, and everything, everything that's happening in my life is all about what does it have to do with me? And how do I feel, think, or believe about that? I'm just, and what are people thinking and feeling and believing about me? And I'm just... I've got, it's like somebody took the oxygen hose to my spirit and crimped it like a garden hose. And I'm literally suffocating with myself, you know, and I get depressed. Um, and so I did what I've done many times in my life, which is I have an amazing gift. It's of time travel. It's really cool. You may not have known that you could do this, but I could do it standing right here. And what it looks like is I travel back to the past. And I'm reliving when that person did that thing, they said that thing, and whatever. And next time I see them, I'm going to say this, and I'm just grinding over resentment, thinking about I'm going to kill that woman. Um, or I go back to the past, and I beat myself over the head with the club of remorse and regret. If you hadn't shown up that day to take that guy to the airport, if you hadn't have done this, if you hadn't gone back to that dude again, if you hadn't have done this, you know, just beating myself over the head. Or I don't do that as much today, by the way. Steps are really great for that kind of stuff. But I do tend to time travel to the future quite a bit, even today. And I'm like Chicken Little. The sky is falling. Everything come at me is terrifying. i got to stop right now whatever I'm doing and think about every scenario, what we're going to do. And, and I'm, we, we talk in here about clearing up the wreckage of our past, but I'm clearing up the wreckage of my future. Because I'm like, okay, if that happened, I'm going to do this. And How am I going to manage it? How am I going to work it out? You know, I'm just, I drive myself to panic. 
my personal favorite, I'll be happy when. It's just not attainable. It's not now. Right? And when I was suffering from that depression of untreated alcoholism in the rooms of AA, I thought, if only, okay, I'll be happy when. I graduate from college, I get out from my grandmother's thumb, because we argue sometimes, you know. Um, if I can just get back to Atlanta, I've been wanting to get back to Atlanta forever. If I can get a job, and I'm not sure with two felonies, if I can get a career job, everything will be fine. And sometimes you get everything that you ask for and more. And I did. You know, I got a career job. Like, I'm starting training, but I was going to be like an insurance underwriter because I had a finance degree. They took a chance on me. I told them about my felonies and whatever, and they still took a chance and hired me. So I got a cute little apartment. My grandmother helped me furnish it. Um, I was back in Atlanta. Uh, I'm thrilled. I don't, have a, I don't have a boyfriend yet, but I'm not really worried about it because I'm so thrilled about this job. That, that was coming, believe me, because I was a, a serial dater and relationship person. They put me on a plane to travel to Minneapolis for training for this job, and they sent me in first class. Never traveled in first class. Man, I, I have arrived. That's what I'm thinking. And I ordered a Coke. And this little old lady next to me ordered a rum and Coke. She got that little tiny bottle. Aren't they so cute? I mean, they look like they've been miniaturized. They're just darling. And it started talking to me. If I'm, if I'm not treating my alcoholism, I, there's only two doors for me here. Just two. I'm either doomed to an alcoholic death or I'm choosing a spiritual life. And the default position is to die from alcoholism. So if I stop choosing the spiritual life by my actions, I'm basically choosing the other door. I didn't mean to. I wanted there to be some kind of window or door in the middle, but there isn't for a person like me. And so I walk around and I'm not safe and protected when I'm not adhering to the steps and having a relationship with God. So I was in the right place at the right time and got drunk out of the blue. Just like Fred in the big book. There's not a cloud on the horizon. And he thinks, I think a cocktail would be nice with dinner. Right? And so the stewardess comes back by and I said, do you have wine? She said, I have a Chardonnay. I have Chardonnay. I said, I'll have one. And I remember drinking it, looking at the fluffy clouds off the plane, thinking, I'm improving on my story. Because AA really messes up your drinking pretty bad. Uh, and it was an important relapse because I was only out there for a couple of months. On sheer willpower alone, I can drink controlled for a minute just to prove to you I can. I may not be really happy about it, but I'm proving a point. So it's not like the first time the alcohol hits me, now I'm drinking three bottles of wine. But the minute after I've done that two or three times and I think, see, I knew I wasn't an alcoholic the whole, the whole time. If I just stay away from drugs, it's fine. The minute that that crosses my brain and I've bought that, the gloves come off. I mean, I literally, then I, now I'm bringing the 12 pack to the party and I'm worried people are going to take it and I'm, t I'm kind of sneaking theirs too. And then I've, I've drank all that and I'm going out to drive. I mean, it's the same thing and I'm vomiting and it's the same situation. And if I had been out there any longer, I promise somebody would have walked over with me intoxicated with some drugs and here we go. Because I'm an every time, everything gal, right? Um, I didn't mean to come back to AA, but a girlfriend of mine came to see me from South Georgia. She was around me five minutes and knew I had, I had relapsed. I hadn't drank that day, but literally my whole deportment changes. I'm not the same person. And she sussed it out in five minutes. We talked a lot, and she wasn't really trying to talk me back into AA, but we talked about our drunk mothers. We both had drunk mothers and talking about different things. And it was the next day she said she'd like to go to a meeting, and I said, well, I could take you over to this clubhouse 
So I was really being a kind friend, taking her to the meeting. I had no intention of stopping drinking. And uh, at the end, it was a discussion meeting. I don't even know what the topic was, but um, at the end, a lot of times, I don't know about here, but back in Georgia, in a discussion meeting, often at the end, they'll say, does anybody have any burning desire to share? And usually, because I'm very inappropriate, I'll usually say, you know, there's a cream for that, uh, because I'm sarcastic and cynical. Um, But for some reason, when they said there's any burning desires on this night, it's like my hand went up without my (laughs) say-so. And I don't remember exactly what I said, but I started to cry. And I said, I picked up a four-year chip here a few months ago, and I've been drinking ever since. And I don't know if I want what you have. I don't know what you have. But I know I don't want what I got. Something like that. And again, I'm not a stupid person. I sat at home the next few days and thought, you know, why'd you do that? Why did you relapse after four years? And I thought, well, that's light bulb, of course. You, you never had a sponsor. You never went through the steps. You did some Hazelden worksheets and some stuff and those therapeutic efforts. But I never, that stuff never connected me to the power that I need. I don't know why it didn't exactly. Because if somebody asked me to work in the steps, I'd say, sure, and I'd show them my worksheets. I'm doing it. But somehow it's, there's something magical about what the process in the big book somehow. And I wouldn't go to big book meetings. In fact, I still have the big book they gave me at the treatment center because they gave me a stack of books. And it didn't have anything in it. It had been sitting on the shelf for four years. You could have hidden a million-dollar check from me in there, and I'd have never found it, right? Because those people try to tell you what to do. I call them big book Nazis, you know? I love when they call me that today. Um, and so she said, okay, uh, I asked somebody to sponsor me. And she said, you got a big book? I said, yeah. She said, come to the house and bring it. And so once a week we met with her and went through the book. Very simply, no homework assignments, whatever. Just when it said to pray, we prayed. We said to write, we wrote. Um, we did what the book said to do. And I was hard to sponsor because I'm a big fat know-it-all. Um, thank God this was before cell phones because I think I spent, it was like cardio. I mean, I rolled my eyes at what my sponsor would say. You know, um, I mean, I'd call her with a problem, and she'd listen for just a minute. She'd go, okay, well, I think what you need to do is pray to ask God to help you remove that resentment that you clearly have. And then I think you need to get to the meeting 30 minutes early and help them set up. I'm like, I just described to you a work problem. Wait a minute, you didn't hear me. Let me start over. Okay, so let's go back to it. She's like, I heard you just fine. She's trying to get me to take actions that are removing me from the problem because I'm trying to figure out something that ain't quite happened yet, you know. Um, finally she got, because I would just go, well, why do I have to do that? If it didn't make sense to me, it's stupid. You know, I don't, and if I couldn't wrap my mind around it, I wouldn't do it. But alcohol had beaten me pretty bad, and I was pretty low. Um, so ultimately I did what she said, but every time I'd be like, well, why do I have to do that? <laughs> I, w- I wanted to argue about things. And finally she just said, do it because I said so. <laughs> like, I, she had to grab me around the neck and say, just do it. So, um... When I got my three-month chip, I cried through the whole meeting because my ego was still taking a beating over losing my time. By the time I got six-month chip, I could have done cartwheels down the aisle. It doesn't have to take a long time if you mean business and have a competent sponsor to walk you through the material. Um, like John had said, I, because I'd done tons of therapy, I was pretty angry at my father. Those first three, four years of AA, I mean, I would hang up on him. Uh, if he ever started talking about the past, he'd push some buttons and we'd get in an argument. I desperately wanted him to take his part in things. You know? He wouldn't do it. Uh, 
and it was a mess. So we had gotten a little better, but I remember the first time my husband John met him, I was a few months sober that second go-round, and he said literally the temperature changed in the car as soon as my dad got in the car. Like icy in there, right? But by the time I had gone through the steps and had made amends to him, same thing like what John had said on Friday, is that I laid out what I had done. I finally saw it from his point of view. His only child, who showed so much promise, walked down the same path as his ex-wife that he almost lost his life to. And he had to drive me from South Georgia to Kentucky to this huge, imposing prison that looks like an old mental hospital and drop me off. And the whole time I'm driving up, and this is hours and out, 10, 12 hours, and I'm talking about how I'm, I know I'm going to be raped and be beaten, and I'm going to kill myself, and I'm, I'm just, all I can do is think about me, 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 me. I never once thought about that man. What a long drive for him to turn around and leave me there. And so because I could kind of see it from his point of view, those are some of the things that I talked about in the amends. And then he finally said what I've been dying to hear him say for years, which is, you know, I made a lot of mistakes and I could have been a better dad. And I said, you were great. I know you love me. I know you care about me. You went to great lengths to help me. And so I absolved him of that. And we, we had a lot of years where I could redo and have, you know, um, do living amends to become the daughter that I should have been all along. And I'm so grateful for that. He died in 2014 and we were good, really good. Um, now, I should not have relapsed. That was in February of, of 1994 that I got sober. And I had a psychic change through the steps. I mean, finally, started, people started asking me to sponsor them. Nobody asked me to sponsor them those first three or four years because I was not a vision for you, I promise you. I was crazy. Now, a bunch of us young people paddled around together. We were kind of all crazy. We just stayed sober on fellowship and fun and whatever, but we were crazy. It was blind leading the blind. And I developed an AA personality. Because, you know, I'd go to the 5.30 and somebody would share some spiritual nugget. I'm like, I really like that. So then I'd go to the 8 o'clock and share it like it was my own. Yeah. And that's like John said, they come up to you and go, wow, you, what you share really helped me. I'd be like, keep coming back. It works if you work it. You know, I mean, phony, 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 right? Well, now my sobriety had, my recovery had some meat on it. It had some, something different. And I remember one time, about a year and a half sober, going down to South Georgia and hitting one of those meetings that I had attended for four years. And I don't remember, maybe this topic was step three or something, and I shared... And I had two separate people come up to me afterward and say, what happened to you? Because you're not the same person that you were. And say, I'm living with the change, so I'm living with the crazy head. And I can't see that in a year and a half I've changed a lot. I can see it in somebody that came in behind me because they looked really scared and crazy or whatever. And I saw them get a sponsor and work the steps. And like they're helping out in the meeting, got the broom in their hand, they're friendly, they're doing the deal. They're connected to something. But I often can't see it in myself because I live with this 10-piece band sometimes, you know, especially back then. But somebody could see me. It was like I had, it's like when I had gone to meetings there, my hair was this short. They hadn't seen me for a year and a half, and now it was really long, right? And they're like, wow, you look really different, you know? Um, So I start sponsoring. I get engaged to this lovely man up down front, um, boy met met girl on AA campus. It shouldn't have worked because he's a 13th stepper. Uh, he had five years sobriety. I had three months. Um, but I was committed. 
And I knew what I needed to do, and I was really serious. And that's the only reason that that part worked, right? Um, usually those kind of things are a disaster. I mean, I, I dated somebody when I had three and a half years the first time, and he had about six months. He went back out shortly after we dated a few months, and he was out there for eight years. I felt really bad about that. Thankfully, I ran into him one time at a meeting. I heard he got back in, and I was able to make amends to him. And I said, I know I didn't put the drugs and the drinks in your face, but I messed up with your process of recovery, and I shouldn't have done that, and I knew better. Um, but we got engaged, and part of the reason it worked was because we had an AA and AA Al-Anon couple sit down and talk, walk us through how to work the traditions in a marriage, in a home. So we had some tools, finally, because we certainly didn't have great parental guidance. There's tons of marriages and divorces and insanity there, and... And we were still pretty young, so we were kind of flying blind. But, I mean, we've been together 27 years and married for 25, so I promise you the traditions can, if they can keep a crazy bunch of alcoholics together, it can certainly keep a couple together. With, so we have each have our own spiritual program, and then we got a program for the house. you know. And I'll, I'll be forever grateful for that. But he started grad school, and we moved to start school. We went to Connecticut for three years. We went to London, England for four years. It took him seven years to get that degree. And every time I moved, I thought I had to have a new sponsor in the new town. And that's a good idea. You hear that a lot. But we do have technology, especially these days. Back then, we still had telephones. I could have been sponsored long distance until someone came up, but I thought I needed to get a new sponsor. I did have one in Connecticut, and she was all right. wasn't quite as great as the first one, but we did some step work. When I went to London, I don't even know who could have sponsored me. And my husband would probably tell you, I didn't meet a single female that I would have said was really involved with the program. Um, so in no time, um, I'm sponsoring myself. You know, I mean, I got years of sobriety. I can make some decisions here, can I? And I, I thought I could manage my life. And I had two children, one in Connecticut, and then we had another one in England. And these two little boys were so stinking cute, but they drove me insane. With no program, I am impatient. I have... I'm angry most of the time. Uh, I'm afraid, too. Um, and my oldest child was really tough from the word go, really. And I am crazy. I think sometimes my husband would come home in England, ride in the train home, and reach our door and have to put his hand on the door to feel the temperature. Like, what is he walking into? And it might have been a fine day, all is well. Um, I might be screaming at them and chasing them around with a hairbrush to pat them on the butt. Or I might be in the corner crying and they're running around not being looked after. And I'm like, oh, God, I can't do it. I mean, I am just hanging on by my fingernails. It's terrible. Suffering, suffering so bad. And again, I'm time traveling thinking if I can just get back to Atlanta. Familiar meetings, familiar people. And so I kind of hung on for that, right? When we came back, I had about seven or eight years when we moved back to the States, but I had been running the show so long, I couldn't see land. And I couldn't seem to do what I, I am so impressed other people in AA do, which is they have years of sobriety and they know they've gotten off the beam and they want to hit restart. And they sometimes change home groups or get a new sponsor and they go through the steps again, brand new, as if they don't know a thing. And they get to keep their time and have a new experience. And that's not what I've done. I know my ego, that's what progresses when you're sober, by the way, because alcoholism always progresses. And what progresses when I'm sober is my ego. I get unsponsorable. You can't tell me nothing. I already know everything. 
Um, probably the only reason I made it to 10 years is because I did a lot of service work. Because service work will save the day. And I sponsored a lot of people and did a lot of AA stuff. But I promise you, it will not save your life. It is not the replacement of having a personal program of action where I'm sometimes putting pen to paper and in inventory and I'm having to make amends and I'm having to be transparent with a sponsor and be sponsorable and I'm having to have a prayer life and a meditation life with God. Service work doesn't replace that. You know? Um, and I eventually psychic changed back to what it was. Uh, I was coming out of my skin. And it wasn't like every single day, I don't guess. You know what I mean? But it was all over the place. And... Uh, just because you're sober doesn't mean you promised a rose garden. It rains and snows on everybody, right? Doesn't matter how good an AA member you are, bad stuff's going to happen because that is life. That is it. And because I didn't have God in my life, when the storm came and sat over our house and blew a blizzard, I, I had no tools. I wasn't prepared for this. And in very short order, uh, a series of events happened. Um, we had another baby. If you heard John on Friday, you're talking about my daughter, who's now 17. Um, and we found out she'd had a stroke in the womb. And they took her by emergency C-section. When I saw the scans of her brain with this big hole in it, I mean, it made, made me sick to my stomach. I mean, you know, because people say, you're pregnant. They're like, oh, do you want a boy or a girl? And they say, what do they say? They say, oh, it doesn't really matter as long as it's healthy. Well, what happens when it isn't? And I thought, I have been running around chasing those boys, screaming at the top of my lungs. They drive me absolutely crazy. And now i got this child who's going to need care. And like, this is a huge mistake to give her to me. Right? I mean, I don't know whether she's going to walk, feed herself, do stuff. I don't know what's going to happen to her. You know? Um, and the truth, I don't believe that God does that. I don't have the kind of conception that I think God made you live, made you die, made you have this. I, don't, I just don't have that kind of conception. I can't wrap my mind around th something like that. But I thought, if I'm wrong, and God really does have a plan that begins with, you're living, you're dead, you have this, whatever, it kind of made sense. Because I deserve to be punished. Because I've been a terrible mother. And while I'm in the hospital, still recovering, my grandmother, who was like my mother, fell, shattered her leg, had a series of surgeries, and she was 80. It started that demise that sometimes happens when an older person falls or whatever, and she died 18 months later. Um, and I go down to see her as soon as I can, I'm cleared to drive and take my infant daughter down there to kind of look after her. She's in assisted living. She still has a house in town. So I'd look after my grandmother and run around and do that and go back to her house, and I started looking through her cabinets. Because I'm, I'm a nosy girl. I like to look in your cabinets. I want to see what kind of mental illness medication you're taking. I mean, I'm, I'm like that. I look through your stuff. Because I have an obsessive need to know things. And she had some painkillers laying around. I thought, why not? I've never done those. So I popped a couple of painkillers. My daughter was already asleep. I kicked back in the lounge chair. And nothing happened except for I got a warm, fuzzy feeling and went to bed. And I opened a door. And it was probably a year later. I'm using 25 hydrocodone, 10 milligram, round the clock, every day. And I'm adding a diet pill in the morning, because why not wake up with a bang? And I'm having to take Ambien at night to go to sleep, because I could clean the bathroom with a toothbrush. Crazy person. And nobody knew. My husband didn't know. My sponsees didn't know. I'm still taking them through the big book. I'm the chairperson of my home group. 
So I take living a double life to places that most people can't wrap their mind around. I remember one instance. Because I never felt guilty either. You know, when you're unplugged from God, I really believe your conscience and that thing that kind of stomach starts grinding on is your conscience. And you really don't have that if you're not connected to God. And I unplugged from God during that time. I would have told you the big book works and AA works and God's there and all this stuff because I'm, I know it to be true. But I wasn't doing anything. I was a total fraud. And I didn't feel bad about the fact that I came to your meeting and took your camaraderie and took your spirituality and popped a couple of pills in the bathroom and then came home and did it again. And I didn't care. I remember one time we were on the way home from my home group and my husband said, you know, I don't know when I love you more than when I hear you share in an AA meeting. And I was high as a kite. But you know, pop two more pills and that'll take care of that pesky guilt. You ain't got to worry about that. Um, Eventually, I knew that I had to stop. I was having these talks with myself right there at the end, saying, you're using 25 a day now. What does it look like a year from now? Are you using 50? Are you on heroin, sticking needles in your arms? I mean, it only gets worse. Can you live taking 50 a day? Like, seriously? How can you get them all? I mean, it just seemed like I knew this, this had to stop. And I, I came up with a plan because I'm always coming up with plans. I don't want to lose my sobriety time because I had picked up year 11 and 12 and wasn't sober. And I'm about to pick up 13. And uh, so I decide, you know what? I'm going to fake a flu. I know I'm going to have withdrawal. It'll be kind of flu-y symptoms. And so I'm going to fake a flu. And for good measure, I'm going to stop drinking coffee and smoking cigarettes just because everybody's going to expect me to feel kind of out of, out of sorts and irritable. And that was my plan. And I did not tell my husband I was faking the flu yet. That was going to have to come after, right? But I told him about my grand plan to stop smoking and drinking, and drinking coffee. And uh, I made grand declaration about it. And so he came home the very day one when I had the plan. And he came home a little early thinking, she may be a little off. I might have to do dinner tonight or something. She might be really, you know, no nicotine. And he comes home about 4 o'clock. I'm in the bath because I'm starting to have the body aches. And I, I know, I hear the door, and, I, and I've already been sitting there thinking, this is a bad plan. You're not going to be able to do this. And I remembered what I would heard an AA speaker from America say one time at a speaker meeting in England. And I don't remember, I don't remember her whole story. I remember she was blonde. Um... And I remember one line I've never forgotten. And she said, sometimes you can't save your ass and your face at the same time. And I wanted to save face and protect my time and protect my ego. And I thought, you're not going to be able to do this. And I knew that there were going to be some people in my life that were probably going to be pretty mad when I got honest about what I've been doing. But my, my life was on the line. So he comes home to check on me and I said, we gotta, i got to sit you down. i got to tell you something. And I can't get the words out. I'm crying that, <laughs> that kind of cry that I detest so much. And I, I'm trying to get the words out. It's like this great build up. And he finally says, for God's sake, tell me, what is it? And I said, I have been using pills for the last two years. He said, oh, my God, really? And I said, yeah. And he said, do you want to be sober? And I said, yes, more than anything. He said, oh, thank God. He said, I thought you were going to tell me you were having an affair and were leaving me. And he said, you know, we know what to do about a pill problem. We don't know what to do about a penis problem. Like that, I don't know what to do with that. And of course, I laughed through the tears. I mean, our, our marriage is made up of a lot of laughter. And so I, then I hit reset. I wish, like, my ego wishes still I could have kept my time. If 
But in the end, if it took that to get where I am today, it's okay. It really is. It took a while before I could really say that truthfully. Um, and I started over. I got a new sponsor. I already had the home group, but I had to go into the home group and a couple other meetings that I attended regularly. And I basically picked up white chips and told them what happened and, and put up with the gossip. And the some people didn't want to get close to me. They felt out of sorts because we were John and Kathy in Atlanta and like this has happened and I don't know they thought maybe they got close to me they might catch a relapse or something um, and I couldn't sponsor anybody I had one sponsee that wouldn't fire me and I was like I don't know how that's supposed to work but I still need to be your sponsor you can't start taking care of me now um, and I was kind of in no man's land after I made some amends I was only a few months sober and so I was kind of stuck and I started listening to speaker CDs again to feel because my head was going crazy and I was in and out of depressions and all of this. And I remember one time calling my sponsor and saying, you know, my mother was a paranoid schizophrenic and mentally ill. And there's there's multiple suicides on that side of the family. Maybe I need the medication like I'm, I was in a low that day. And she said, stop trying to solve your spiritual problem with something in the human realm. You've been OK without medication before you can get there again. You just got to sit through it. So that's what I did. And it took about nine months or a year before things started leveling off, but they did. Um, and I didn't do anything differently this time than I had done that second time, except for I continue to do it. You know, my sponsor told me, you are no longer allowed to tell your sponsees to do anything you're not currently doing because you've been a fake and a fraud and a phony a lot of your sobriety. So I started really doing it in earnest because I cared more about them. I didn't want to go up to step 11 in the big book and go, we're just going to skip 86 or 88 because you don't do that. I don't do it. So let's just go to step 12. I didn't want to tell them that. I didn't want to kill these people. And so I started doing this with, with, uh, you know, with, with a real commitment. And I learned one main thing, and I'll shut up with this. I've talked a long time. But the main thing I learned that third time around is something that I don't know that I knew the second time around is that even those people that kind of just don't drink and come to meetings and meet with their buddies and go to dinner, if they do work some steps, it will help your life. It's a great foundation for life. It's not original to us. You can find lots of spiritual literature going back hundreds and thousands of years, actually, that kind of talk about what we do here in the steps. This is not The traditions are original to us, but the steps are not, really. The way we've lined them up, maybe, but... But those came from the Oxford groups, too, so it's not even original there. Um, it will help somebody, and we have lots of 12-step programs. They're, st they're still using the 12 steps. There's a lot of spiritual maladies that display different ways, and people get helped by a spiritual program of action. But what I thought is that I had acute alcoholism. And the big book's really lit written for chronic alcoholics. Over and over again, they say either chronic alcoholic or alcoholics of our type or alcoholics of our kind. What that says is there's different types of alcoholics, all kinds of types. And you may be sitting in your home group around a lot of different ones. And it's not my business whether you're, you know, alcoholic light or whether you're a dirtbag like me, you know. Um, I know that what I really have is chronic alcoholism. And the way it was described to me that made total sense my dad, for the last 10 years or more of his life, he was a diabetic. And he fell out one day with a sugar crash or whatever it was, went to the hospital. They take his blood sugar. He's got diabetes. And that's another chronic illness. 
And so the treatment is you've got to you know, lose 25 pounds and we'll find the right pills to take. And they did. And it's like he jumped ahead of this disease. And he was compliant with the treatment plan and it was all good. But see, his diabetes was always getting worse over time. And eventually, after about five years, his numbers are out of whack again. So now you've got to lose 10 more pounds. We're going to change your medication to something else. And he jumped ahead. But still, that diabetes over time is getting worse. So he had to do more with his treatment program over time. And at the end, he was taking insulin shots in his stomach or whatever because he had a chronic illness. You never get over a chronic illness. You know? And I wanted to treat AA as if it was pneumonia. It's something very serious that can kill you, especially if you're young or old. But if you get proper treatment, a lot of treatment on the front end, you can get over an acute illness. But you never get over a chronic one. And I wanted to treat AA. Like, I want to come in here and get the sponsor and work the 12 steps and get, get the psychic change and, and feel better. And now I can just kick back. It'd be like a diabetic going, well, my sugar numbers have been good for a while, so I can eat that ding-dong. And they just stop it because they were good with their sugar last week. And then they wake up in the hospital with out of a diabetic coma, and they're like, I don't know why this happened. I mean, I, my sugar numbers were great last week, and I have a great job and a great life. It's, it's a daily reprieve. It's a daily treatment, right? And so I do, when, when Cliff was talking last night about getting back to basics, and really the basics are all we got. It's staying in the basics. And I do do more over time, not less. Now, when I first got sober again, I might have hit... Seven meetings a week, because I was trying to hit a meeting every day. I don't do that every day. But if you count the, the, the meetings with sponsees and working on the Atlanta Roundup and being treasurer of my home group and all these other things, I do way more AA now than I ever did when I was hitting a meeting every day. You know? And I'm trying to stay ahead of my disease because it's constantly on my heels. And so I hope I look like an everyday member of AA because... I don't know how much, I don't, I don't really think there's much standing still, not really much complacency in standing still. You're either moving towards drink or away from one. And I want to stay ahead of it. I don't want to go back. I mean, it about killed me to get sober again this time. And I know I got another drunk in me. I always got another one there. And I'm the girl who always drinks again. It's guaranteed. So if I stop doing this, it's a guarantee that it's going to happen again. And I don't know, man. I don't know if I would just blow my brains out because I tell you, the shame of walking up and picking up a white chip after that, it about killed me, you know? So I'm super, super grateful for AA. I'm super grateful that God gave me a third try because if God was like me, I'd have been like, you know, I helped you that second time. And then you came to my meetings and you got the spirituality and whatever and spouted off all this stuff and spit in my face. Yeah, I'm not, you're not worth my time. So I'm really glad that that's not the case. Um, and I'll, I'll close with a little prayer that I learned. Most of the prayers I say come from AA. I have a very AA God. I didn't even know the Lord's Prayer until I came to Alcoholics Anonymous. Like, I knew part of it from a Yaz song in the 80s, but I, like, I'm a quick study. By the third meeting, I kind of got it, you know. Um, so all the prayers I mostly say are from the big book, but there's a couple here and there I've gleaned from speakers and stuff, and one comes from my friend Bob, and I like to close with it because I do say it a lot, and it's called I Am the Place. I am the place where God shines through. He and I are one, not two. I need not fret, worry, or plan, because God wants me where and as I am. And if I will be relaxed and free, he will carry out his plan through me. Thank you so much for coming and listening.